Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Zach Evans Podcast, where we strive to provide you with uplifting and challenging content each week designed to help you in your walk with Jesus. This week, we are going to explore the topic of Bible reading, a topic that I'm very passionate about, reading in general, but specifically reading the Bible. And we're going to go in-depth into why I believe many Christians struggle to get out of their Bible what they should. And so if you're the kind of person who struggles with that, like I believe the majority of Christians do, whether it's just reading as consistently as you should or gleaning from it what you would like to, I believe this episode will be an encouragement to you. So as always, thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed this episode. God bless. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12, the Bible says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I want to talk a little bit this morning about Bible reading. And this is something I enjoy talking about. It's something that I'm, I guess, fairly passionate about. And the first time that I really spoke on this subject at length, like a practical way of thinking about reading your Bible, was many years ago when we had, still had our fall ladies meeting. And my mother came to me and she said, do you have any Bible reading plans that we can give out at the ladies conference? We want to do a session on Bible reading, encourage everyone to read their Bible. I said, well, not really, and here's why. And I kind of gave my take, my philosophy, if you will, on Bible reading and Bible reading plans. And that turned into, we talked in the hallway there for over an hour, and uh, just about some of these ideas. We won't get into all of them today. We just don't have time. But at the end, she said, well, what would you think about just teaching that at the conference? I said, teach what? She's like, everything you just said. I said, I don't remember what I just said. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that was an hour ago. And um, so I did. I didn't have any notes. I didn't have anything prepared. It was just kind of the way that I thought and lived and whatever. And so I did. I got up in front of uh, like 300 women. It was the only dude in the room. You talk about not the most uncomfortable I've been behind a pulpit, but pretty close. And... Uh, and it was all right before lunch. They were a little hangry, a little emotional. And, um, but so I did. I talked for like uh, 35, 40 minutes or something on how, how you should approach Bible reading. And to my shock and surprise, it went over extremely well. And so much so that many of those ladies made commitments and, and were very successful in their Bible reading over the next 12 months. I even got 12 months to the day after the meeting. I got a random email from a preacher's wife that, that we uh, kind of loosely know, and she said, I just want you to know that today I finished my Bible through for the very first time in my life. She's a preacher's wife. She's a preacher's wife, and she had never actually read the Bible completely and totally through, and she did it in a year. So I know that I don't know, it's most for sure, 51% is most. Most Christians struggle to read their Bible faithfully. Like, I know that. Um, I also know that we get tired of hearing the preacher talk about reading your Bible. And 
there's reasons for that. There's plenty of reasons for that. One is that we don't realize the depth of importance underneath it. Um, and we don't really talk about that a lot. And we're not going to go maybe totally in that route. We'll see just kind of where we end up today. But we, we tend to just talk about the surface arguments. Like, I mean, you're, you're supposed to read your Bible. And you know what you're supposed to And you're not reading your Bible. And it's like, it's all motivated by guilt. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know that you should be doing it. Start doing it so you stop feeling bad, and I don't have to say this anymore. Like, that's the general argument that we kind of make for Bible reading, and I'd say that's a fairly poor argument. I think there's a lot better reasons to read your Bible than to placate guilt. And that's one of the things, first things that you have to do in relation to your Bible reading is just get rid of the guilt that you feel and are experiencing from having not read it. Because does it make any sense to allow your guilt for not doing something to preclude you from starting to do it? Like, that's not helpful. I feel bad that I'm not doing something. I'm going to dwell on the fact that I feel bad so that I continue not to do it. It's like, well, then maybe we should just stop feeling bad. Maybe we should just kind of get over that. Maybe we should confess it, get it forgiven, remove the guilt, and then move on. Maybe that's what we should do. But a lot of people are motivated primarily by guilt to read their Bible. And if they read their Bible, the best outcome for them is a lack of guilt. They just don't feel bad that they're not reading it. That's not good enough. <laughs> that's not near good enough. And that's not a sustainable motivation, right? And so we need better motivations. But I want to talk about some practical things for you to think about in relation to your Bible reading. And we're just going to entitle this, How to Get More Out of Your Bible Reading. How to Get More Out of Your Bible Reading. Because that's the classic phrase, right? Well, I read my Bible. I just didn't get anything out of it. Like that, nobody says, I am not reading my Bible. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't care about reading my Bible. And so I'm not reading my Bible. Like they don't say that. What they say is, well, there was one time that I did do the thing that you're saying I should do and nothing happened. Deal with that, preacher man. What are you going to do with that? I did it and it didn't work. I did it and I didn't get anything out of it, as if that's just a mic drop argument, like that's it. So the question that we're going to try to answer to some extent is, well, why don't you get what you should out of the Bible? Why is that? There's reasons. <laughs> There's reasons. And it's not that it doesn't work. That's not the answer. It's not that it doesn't work. It does work. So confession. Um, I don't get much out of art. Anybody feeling me on that one? Okay. Raise your hand. You're not an art person. Don't really understand it. Don't really get art. Okay. About half of us. Art people. All right. Defend yourselves. Okay. Be, uh, <laughs> be honest. So you're like, I enjoy art. I like art. I appreciate art. Raise your hand. Okay. Primarily women. Just for the record. And there's a reason for that. It has to do with the personality differences between men and women. Uh, women tend to be more creative than men, um, and they tend to be slightly more open. There's a personality trait called openness, and I believe that women are typically more open than men. It's why uh, a lot of artists, obviously, are, are female. Guys, we're more interested in things. You know, paintings are about this person and how they felt and expression and we're not very good at those things. Now, some, some people are, and that's fine. It's not necessarily divided masculine and feminine necessarily, but there is some, some influence there. But for much of my life, I've struggled to appreciate 
art. And I don't, one of the reasons is I don't know what makes good or bad art. You know what I mean? I don't know how to walk up to a painting and go, that one's good. That one's really good. I can't tell you. Uh, there's uh, Brian Regan, one of my favorite comedians, and he's uh, a clean comic. He talks about like abstract art. He's like, I don't know what to do with that. He's like, Picasso's got two ears on the one side of the face. He's like, for me, that's an F. <laughs> you, get a, you get an F. I, I don't get it. He's like, but me, I see a picture of a bowl of fruit. I'm like, hey, there's a painting of a bowl of fruit. Hey, there's a bowl of fruit. That's a great painting. You know, I think that's more the way I judge art. I look at it and I'm like, well, I mean, these look similar. It's pretty good. But I understand that's not really how it works. And the abstract art is difficult, especially the postmodern art, which much of that's just stupid. Like, remember, remember the banana that was duct taped to the wall? You didn't hear about this? It sold for, I forget how much. It was over a million dollars. It's a banana duct taped to a canvas. Yeah, I think eventually it got vandalized. I'm like, it's going to rot anyway. Like, what is the, what's the purpose of this? The, did you see the, this is actually a really crazy clip just because of people's reactions, but there's a clip in the, oh, what's the name of the big auction house? Big auction house and this painting of a girl, I believe she was holding a balloon, maybe flying a kite. And it was pretty, I guess. And it's in a frame already and they bid on it. It goes for a ridiculous amount of money. And as soon as the gavel hits, sold. There's the, the painting starts to descend into the frame and shred into a bunch of different pieces. The artist had a shredder built into the frame that as soon as the painting was sold, he'd hit it and it would shred the painting and it would like hang down beneath the painting. I'm thinking, bro, like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I just, start, just blow it up, you know what I mean? It's like, there you go. Like, and then the person, they, they offered the person like, hey, you know, sorry about that, you're thing got destroyed and then when he understood that it was a part of the thing he's like that is so awesome and creative I'm like I don't get this I don't I don't get art um I have tried to appreciate art more because I think that think about this there's we are still looking at paintings that are you know hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years old and there's got to be a reason for that right I mean you can say a lot in an image you can say a lot in an image. You know, one that I actually did enjoy, I talked about this uh, a while back, you guys remember, um, there's that painting by Duray, Albert Duray, that's called Melancholia, of the angelic-like figure who's sitting in the room of all the different possibilities doing nothing. And that one really impressed me because I heard someone explain the depth of the thing. But if I'm walking down an art gallery hallway, I'd look at that and go, what's the deal? And I'd keep going. I wouldn't think much of it. I actually listened to... Uh, Walter Isaacson, my favorite <coughs> secular biographer, uh, his biography of Leonardo da Vinci. And it was fascinating. It was, it was very fascinating. And what Isaacs, Isaacson does, he did this in Einstein as well, uh, Steve Jobs, his book on Steve Jobs, and Benjamin Franklin to a less extent. But he loves to focus on what they were working on and why they did it this way and not that way. And he goes deep into their work. He's, I guess, fascinated by that type of thing. And so you can get a little bit bogged down, but Da Vinci, I mean, he went deep into why he painted things the way that he did. Whole chapters on one work of art. So this is very like foreign territory for me. And the most interesting chapter to me, obviously, or section, was on the Mona Lisa. Um, when I look at the Mona Lisa, I say, okay, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good painting. I don't know what makes it great, but what Isaacson explained was how revolutionary Da Vinci's methods were when he painted the Mona Lisa. So he compared it to other, painter, other painters of the time 
where, for example, if it was a portrait, the person would obviously obviously be in uh, perfect view, and then everything behind them, the hills and the trees, would also be crystal clear. I guess no one really thought that it shouldn't look that way, but da Vinci, of course, is obsessed with the human body and the way that it works, and he was always at the morgue <laughs> dissecting bodies and, and wanting to know how different things worked, and he would obsess over the musculature, and he would, he would examine what would happen when you move the body certain way so that when, if his, uh, if his portrait's person, if the person in the portrait had their arm turned a certain way, he wanted to get the muscles just right. He wanted to show exactly how the muscle would form. The painting St. Jerome in the wilderness, same thing. Like it's very, there's muscle sticking out everywhere. It looks almost gruesome compared to the other art of the time. It's because they were experimenting with the idea of getting the musculature and the anatomy right in the body. And if you look at the Mona Lisa, one of the things that you'll realize is that she is obviously, I can't think of the right word, in the right perspective, like first person perspective, but everything behind her is pixelated. Everything behind her is blurry, as if you were really observing a person. And da Vinci studied the human eye to be able to mimic in his paintings what you would actually see to some extent. He also, it's funny, if you look at the painting, this is amazing that he was able to figure this out. So not only is there there's this idea of dimension in the painting, that the background is literally behind her, that's what it looks like, but also the, if you actually take the painting, and it's hard to see it because your brain corrects it, but the, I guess you'd say the horizon or the middle point of the painting, on one side is lower than the other side. So this side goes down and this side goes up. Well, why is that? Well, it's because she's turned. It's because of the perspective. Now what happens is he knew this, that when you look at the painting, your brain would correct it and it would create even more of a feeling of depth. And he knew that. Nobody was doing stuff like that. Nobody. Uh, when he made the Last Supper, which is just incredible, and I would love to go see it, obviously, but it's huge. It's massive. I mean, it's as big as this wall back here, maybe bigger. It is, it's absolutely huge. The perspective, again, is incredibly amazing. The fact that everything is proportionate. What Isaac, Isaacson does in the book is he shows you, like, this type of image and that type of image, and here's this, you know, I don't know, different ways of looking at the geometry to some extent of the painting. And for example, in the painting of the Last Supper, you have the windows that correspond with the, or the, uh, the doors on the side that correspond with the windows in the back, and everything on the ceiling is perfectly geometrical to the windows on the back and the doors on the side. And if you draw intersecting lines between all of those things, every intersecting line falls right on the face of Jesus in the middle of the painting. So literally, you have this big painting, right? Here's what's amazing about this, because he understood how the brain works and how the eye works. When you walk up to that painting, your body, your physical body, wants itself drawn to the face of Jesus in the painting. And he knew how to accomplish that in a painting that was going to be huge. That's incredible. So you ever uh, see a movie in IMAX? The, the, the screen is a thousand feet high and a thousand feet wide. We saw the Hunger Games, one of the Hunger Games movies in IMAX. And your head has to turn on a swivel to watch the movie. So you can't just dart your eyes because you dart your eyes, you're going to miss something. You're literally, if you sit close enough, moving your head 
back and forth. Okay, well, that's one of the challenges of you know, having a big grand picture in front of you and you being able to focus properly on the thing that the artist wants you to focus on. Da Vinci knew how to get you to focus on Jesus in the Last Supper and not everything else. His reflections and everything were perfect. It's absolutely, it's really incredible. When you begin to break art down to me, to more so to that level, I begin to appreciate the artistry behind it, the craftsmanship behind it. But I think the reason why I think about this, the reason why, naturally speaking, I don't get a lot out of art is probably because of my disposition, my personality. Although I'm very high in openness, which is weird. I'm like 95th percentile in openness, but that doesn't necessitate that you appreciate art per se. There can be, uh, there can be uh, variance in there. But art, by definition, is an acquired taste. It, it really is. I heard a guy talking about his house is full of art. Just every square inch of his house is full of art. And his mother, I think, came into his house and was horrified. You know, she's like, why would you just, I mean, to everywhere. There's no wall space available at all. It's overwhelming. And he said a lot of people are scared to put even one piece of art in their home. Because one, they don't know anything about art. Two, they probably have terrible taste horrible taste. And you think, this is cool. And you buy it and put it in your house. And the truth is someone who knows art walks in your house and goes, that is a terrible painting. But you don't know because you are just beginning to acquire the taste or you have no taste at all, or your palate, let's say, is very underdeveloped. So there's this idea of an acquired taste. And what that phrase implies is a lack of sensory experience with the thing. That's what a acquire a lack of an acquired taste or the fact that something is an acquired taste means that you have a lack of sensory experience with the thing. For example, certain foods are an acquired taste, which means that the enjoyment of them is not easily gained. It's not easily gained. Um, like in the case of you know, sugary or highly processed foods. But gradually, and this is actually true biochemically, you can change your palate so this is my frustration with, um, with picky eaters. So I'm very anti-picky eater. And the reason for it is they say, well, I don't like this. And really what that means is that um, it, it's, it's a lack of discipline in relation to experience. That's, that's really what it is. It is, a, it is a refusal to discipline myself enough to try things that expand my person. And that's a character flaw. And it's not, and, and these people tend, and, and again, some of it is informed by your personality that you are very conservative. And you're probably very conservative in almost every area of your life, not just in the area of food. You're not a risk taker. So you're not somebody who is going to be like, I mean, I want to try these 29 things, and this is my bucket list, and I'm going to go skydiving and whatever. You have your little things that you like, and you tend to stick with that because it gives you security. But the, the problem with that is that. So think about it this way. Um, most of you is potential. Most of you is potential. And the, the difficult thing in life is taking all the things that could be, figuring out which one should be, and then making them actual. That's very difficult. And I told the preacher boys on Wednesday night, I said, humility is gained in realizing how difficult actuality actually is. So for example, somebody's like, well, when I become a parent, I'm going to do this. And parents, like, these are people, like, they are theoretical parents and they don't actually have kids. 
And they're like, well, I, I wouldn't do this, and I wouldn't do that, or whatever. It's like, all right, whatever. So the reason why you don't have humility in relationship to parenting is, is because it's all potential in you, and nothing's made actual. And you realize how difficult life is when you realize how much potential there could be, how many things could be. You have to discipline yourself in, yourself in relation to that, or you're just paralyzed. You can't do anything because you're like, there's so many things I could be and so many things I could do. This is the kid trying to figure out what major he's going to do in college. Why? Too much potential. You have to narrow yourself and make something actual. Okay, but the process of going from potentiality to actuality is difficult. Every single one of us guys, okay, that aren't in shape like we should, which is uh, myself, okay, it's probably all of us except for Gabe, okay, and, and Robert. Robert is his own shape. And uh, so, but the rest of us are not in that great a shape. Okay, we could all be buff by the end of the year. All of us. And the wives are like, yes, you could. <laughs> we could all be buff by the end of the year. And, and there's no reason why we can't be. Zero reason why we can't be. We all could be. Guys, we could do it. <laughs> we could do it. But we're probably not going to do it. Why? Because the process of going from potentiality to actuality is difficult. And it's, it's really hard. Okay, it's difficult. It's easier just to stay with who you actually are. As, a, as opposed to pushing against that potentiality to figure out who you could be. And that's, a hard, that's a hard thing to do. Um, the same is true for music. So there's certain things that are easy to enjoy and certain things that are more difficult to enjoy. This is for food. This is why we like sugary and highly processed foods. It takes no effort to like chicken tenders. Why is it a place like Hooey Magoopties? Hoopty Magoopties. Okay, let's talk about Hoopty Magoopties. Um, why is it that they can exist across the street from Zaxby's? Zaxby's is right there, okay? And then across the street, the business owner's like, what can we build over here to get people to eat? And they're like, how about chicken tenders? And nobody thought, oh, man, Zaxby's has got us cornered on chicken tenders. And there's a Chick-fil-A half a mile down the street. There's chicken everywhere. No, hoopty Magoopties is like, this is the perfect place to put a chicken tender place. Now, why is that? Because everybody likes chicken tenders. Nobody's like, I do not like chicken tenders. I tried them once, did not like them at all. No one says that. So when your market size is 8 billion people, you can have chicken tenders every 30 feet. And everybody's going to survive. Nobody's going to go out of business. Why? Because it doesn't take any effort whatsoever to like chicken tenders. I like chicken tenders, by the way. I have Chick-fil-A way too much. I don't get the tenders. I usually get a salad because I'm a sad and depressed person. Um... But the same is true for music. Think about this. There's lower forms of music that are easy to enjoy, and it takes no effort to enjoy them. These are things with a lot of bass, a lot of rhythm. They're 80, 90, 95% rhythm instruments. You don't have to sit back and go, I'm not really sure this fits my palate. Like, the, no, you just naturally like it. You ever seen the videos of kids? Like Kids just dance instinctively. They dance instinctively, but you don't have to teach them that. You know, because there's something in us that instantly responds to that kind of music. That's like teaching your kids to like sugar. Like, it, it, you don't have to do that. It's instinctive. Okay, but some things are an acquired taste. Now, here's the thing. Um, the possible euphoria from that kind of music is very low relative to the possible euphoria associated with more refined music. There is way more of a ceiling to a euphoric experience in the classical genre than there would be in the genre of hip-hop, for example. 
you are not going to sit back listening to a rap song and be so deeply moved in your spirit and your soul that you're just like, I'm changing my life. This is a transcendent experience right now. The kind of voice I'm doing doesn't sound like the person who'd be listening to that kind of genre of music, but, but there are people who have transcendent experiences in music, and they're almost always classical. And I don't, I don't mean just classical as in Bach and Beethoven and Mozart, but I mean the classical style. It could even be, uh, you know, obviously Christian music, which, by the way, a lot of classical music is Christian. Bach was a Christian artist, like overtly Christian. I've heard it said that to, extend, to understand a piece of music, you need to listen to it all the way through six times. And for, you know, the Brandenburg Concerto, that's going to take a minute, you know. It's going to take a while for you to acquire that sensory education to some extent. All right, so there are people who have a self-imposed ban on any cultivating experience. They have a self-imposed ban on any cultivating experience. Anything that would change who I am as a person, I'm out. I'm not doing that. I am these three things, and that's it. Now, that's easy for me to say because my personality goes in the opposite direction. I'm like, what can I change? What can I improve? What can I do that's new? Let's do it. Let's go here. Let's do this. Like all that stuff. And we tend to get more conservative as we age also. That's, that's true as well. But just like the I must learn to appreciate refined art and the taste must learn to appreciate refined food, think about this. Um, I make the case that the best food experiences in life are not the ones easiest and most natural to enjoy. The best food experiences, and I've had a number of them. I'm, I'm a foodie, 100% admit it, 100%. But here's the thing. For example, I had a friend who, uh, there's this really great Italian restaurant downtown Atlanta called La Grotta. It's classic, classic Italian restaurant. And it's fantastic, really, really good. But it's not your mom and pop Italian place, right? It's more upscale Italian. Still traditional, but nicer traditional. And so I had a friend who's like, hey, you know, I want to take my wife somewhere nice for our anniversary. Where should I go? I'm like, dude, you should go to La Grotta. You should tell it. It's awesome. It's great. He's like, okay. I wasn't thinking. This person is so ultra conservative in relation to food that this was only going to end in disaster. So they get there, right? They eat. Him and his wife, both, just like chicken tenders, buffalo sauce, french fries. That's the American diet. Like, that's all that they eat. And so, which are some of you right now, you're under deep and heavy conviction. And uh, so, but anyway, they go there, right? That's just what they're, that's just there the way that they eat. So they get there, and he orders spaghetti, because he doesn't know what to eat, right? No, no, call me, text me, I will help you. I will tell you what to get. And uh, he gets spaghetti. All right, well, it comes out, and it's not, you know, Mama Johnson spaghetti. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is $23 spaghetti, bro. <laughs> they got to justify that money. You know what I'm saying? So he gets it. And he eats it. He doesn't like it. He calls me. I was like, how'd you like it? He's like, ah, we didn't really like it. I said, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, dude, they put peas in the spaghetti. <laughs> they had peas in the spaghetti, bro. There was like little bits of ham and stuff in the spaghetti. He's like, I, it, was, it was gross. Now, anything green, he sees anything green, he goes into an epileptic seizure. That's what happens. And I, I love this guy to death. But... So it's funny. I also sent them to another place. They, like, I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm a glutton for I said, they're like, we want to go somewhere else. I'm like, oh, yeah, it worked out so good the first time. I said, how about Ted's? Ted's Montana Grill. Fantastic restaurant. One of the best steaks you can get anywhere around here. 
and uh, get the bison ribeye. It's just nuts. Anyway, and by the way, do not get it medium well. I will show up. I will teleport in there and slap it out of your mouth. I will. I will do that. Just smack. But uh, anyway, so, but they go, right? And his wife, who I love so much, and she might be listening to this. I love you. You're a wonderful couple. You guys are awesome, but you got to stop. And so, but anyway, so they, they, she orders chicken tenders at Ted's. Most overpriced chicken tenders in the history of mankind. Chicken tenders. Here's, here's what she does. She goes to the waiter. She says, do you have buffalo sauce? The waiter comes over and gives her a condescending look, which he should. He should. A condescending look and says, no, ma'am, we do not have buffalo sauce. <laughs> she goes like this. It's Ted's Montana Grill. He sources his own bison, right, which is reason enough to go there because that's just cool. She points up at the bison on the wall and says, well, you got buffaloes on the wall. <laughs> I thought, what do you think buffalo sauce is made of, dear? What do you think is happening right now? But here's the thing. I could send them to one of the world's greatest restaurants, one of the absolute greatest restaurants in the world, and a person who has not had the same sensory education is not going to be able to appreciate that. And it's a lack of exposure. That's what it is. And you actually change what you like by exposure. It's why we have to make our kids eat the things that they don't like. It's because they will actually come to like it if they have to eat it. They will get to the place where they actually enjoy it. All right? Here's what Paul said. All that to say this. Paul said, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So listen to me. The normal, base, casual, carnal, fleshly, worldly, and secular you does not have a natural affinity for the Word of God. It doesn't. The Bible is, by definition, an acquired taste. It is. It is something that we learn to appreciate through continued experience and education. I'll say this. The Bible is not for lazy people. The Bible is not for lazy people. It's not. It is a book to be read, reread, meditated on, studied. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is not going to lay up for you. The Bible, like anything else in life that is worth doing, having, experiencing, is going to require a journey of education. That's what it's going to take. And for people to think they can hop in to the most amazing, incredible, profound reading experience of your life, and it just come to life, come to life to you with no priory education or experience of it is foolish and naive. And yet that's what we are saying when we say, well, I read the Bible and didn't get anything out of it. Okay, it's not a problem with the book. It's not a problem with the Michelin star chef back there who's trained and disciplined his whole life to create amazing things. The problem is my lack of sensory education. The writer of Hebrews said this, of whom, speaking of Jesus, we have many things to say, excuse me, of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, they're mature, even those, listen to this, who by reason of use have, ex- have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You have to exercise your spiritual senses. And exercise is hard. It's hard. It's not easy. Um, I love golf. Golf is hard. I think it's the hardest sport on the planet. I think it's more difficult to be a professional golfer than just about any other sport in the world. It is incredibly difficult. And then the difference between the average golfer on tour and the ones who actually win is a mile. It's a mile as well. The distance between them and you is infinity. That's what that is. Now, to, to walk into that arena and expect with little effort, training, funding, experience, discipline, to go out there and shoot 65 is naive. It's hard. Okay, there are some things in life that are hard, especially at first. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. We have to stop approaching the Bible like it's easy. There are easier parts of the Bible, that's true. There are more easier parts to enjoy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we don't need to approach it as if it's something that's easy. Now, the two most immediate reasons why a person might not get anything out of the Bible are these. Number one is they're not saved. The second and most likely reason is they have not exercised their spiritual senses. And we'll skip through this a little bit, but let me say this. Salvation does not give the believer a magic ability to always in every case love and understand all of Scripture. That's not what salvation does. And, and I'm going to talk about this in a second, but sometimes when a preacher says, hey, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You have the author of the Scriptures living inside of you. That's like reading a novel with the author right there next to you. And you're like, yeah, but I wish he'd speak up, you know. I'm not hearing nothing. Okay, that's the wrong conclusion from the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you. You do not have this sudden burst of amazing discernment and wisdom just because you got saved. It doesn't happen. You are given a new nature, and the Spirit of God dwells within you, making this possible. But the sense must still be exercised. The sense must still be exercised. And sense is an expression of nature. So you have a new sense. You have a spiritual sense now, but it has to be exercised. So let's get practical. If we assume that you're saved, what must you do to get more out of the Bible with the understanding that it's an acquired taste gained by the exercise of our spiritual sense across time? That's what an enjoyment of the Bible is, all right? Three things. Number one, expose yourself regularly to the Scriptures regardless of your ability to appreciate or discern them. Expose yourself regularly to the Scriptures regardless of your ability to appreciate or discern them. So if the Bible is an acquired taste gained by the exercise of our spiritual senses, then there is no other way to acquire that taste than by exercise. And here's the thing. Here's the cool thing about exercise, although you have the problem of placebo. You don't have to believe that it's working. You just have to do the thing. That's it. If you lift the dumbbell, you can say, this won't never do nothing. You do that every day, you're going to be ripped. You're going to have big biceps even though you don't believe it. Okay. We approach the Bible in a very childlike, I don't mean that in a good way, but a childlike, well, this thing's going to work. It's like, just do it. Do it regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you felt it 
manifest its uh, success or lack thereof manifests itself in your life, just do it. Is that Shia LaBeouf meme? Just do it. That's true. Just do the thing. Look, the first time Addie had baby food, okay, she's used to milk. The first time she had baby food, she spit it out. She and her face just went like this, like ugh. And I don't remember what it was, but it was probably carrots or something like that. She just spit it out. Like that is what is that? What are you trying to feed me right now? She spat it out. Why? She's only used to one thing, milk. That's it. Okay. Well, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> if we don't graduate from that, it's going to be a problem at some point, right? And across multiple dimensions. But imagining an adult that all they do is drink milk. I saw this uh, video um, on YouTube of a guy who he only eats mac and cheese for 17 years. 17 years, he only eats macaroni and cheese, like Velveeta macaroni and cheese. I mean, so here's the thing. We look at that and say, you know, that's an addiction or whatever. It's just disgusting. It's a lack of discipline. Okay, but there's many Christians that, spiritually speaking, were just on a mac and cheese diet. The, the light show and the crazy music, it's mac and cheese, man. Like, that's what it is. It's just carbs. You get filled up temporarily, and then, boom, it's just gone like that. You need strong meat. You need protein, something heavier, something that will sit in you for a while and really absorb and make you stronger. Um, so the food, for example, we gave Addie is good and beneficial, and they'll learn to like it enough in time, but keeping them on the milk indefinitely will cause irreparable harm. Um, so, okay, let's talk about peanut allergies. You know the number one causer of peanut allergies? A fear of peanut allergies. Almost all kids who have peanut allergies were not exposed to peanuts as kids, therefore they have a peanut allergy. We know that. It's not even debatable. That is 100% the fact. It is a lack of exposure to the thing that creates the repulsiveness later. Okay, we do the same thing with the Bible. We have a lack of experience with it, and then we try to jump in, and we're like, I'm going to read 10 chapters a day. No, you're not. No, you're not. Maybe you should start out with like 10 verses a day. Like maybe you should just have half of a peanut. <laughs> Let's start there and work our way up. If Jesus is correct, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, and I would suggest that he is, then I'm ignoring the very food that nourishes my soul, and I shouldn't be surprised later when I don't seem to have a capacity to absorb it. That's a problem. Number two, pray that God would help you appreciate and discern the scriptures. Pray that God would help you appreciate and discern the scriptures. You know, a great way to learn anything that's difficult is to go to someone else who has an expertise and learn from them. That's, that's the best way to learn anything. So uh, I have a constant problem with my golf swing, and it's called that I suck. Like, that's really what it is, and that's the problem is I'm not very good. So I go to Justin almost every day, and I say, you have to fix me again like you did yesterday. And uh, so why do I go to him? So, you know, no offense to Robin, but I don't go to Robin. I don't go to the Powers family and be like, hey, guys, listen, my golf game is really struggling. I need your help. Um, I'm not going to do that. And... Uh, now, if I needed to learn how to be tall, I could go to Robert and we'd see what we could do with that. Platform shoes, probably. But uh, with Justin, I'm like, look, so he has an expertise. And so I have to access that expertise. Okay, well, let's start here. So th the fact that our understanding of the Bible seems darkened at times is evidence of our carnal nature. It is evidence that we are naturally bent away from that type of understanding. Like, you have to understand that about yourself. And you getting saved did not eliminate your carnal nature. You have a duality 
of nature inside of you that wrestles with one another. Just read Romans chapter 7. So we are sinful and carnal and cannot, as 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, know the scriptures except by the help of the Spirit of God. Look, I like escape rooms. We'll probably go do one here pretty soon. I like escape rooms. I'm not any good at them. Robin is. Um, she's really good, and she's on my team if we ever go. Okay, I'm just saying that out loud. I get the first pick, and she's on my team. Um, imagine doing an escape room in the dark. There's no illumination. There's no light. So it's already very difficult, and then you have no light. Discerning any book, something that the postmodernists are correct about is, is the multiplicity of interpretations. So they're like, hey, there might be an infinite number of interpretations of any given document. Therefore, how can you know that your interpretation is correct? Interesting. So they're not wrong. The modernists would say, well, human reason can lead you to the right interpretation. The postmodernists would say, human reason cannot navigate in infinitude. So for example, if there were an infinite number of paintings, there's not, but an infinite number of paintings, how would you, even if you had like complete and total expertise, find the one that is the best? You would never even finish looking at them, let alone being able to discern which one is the best. Because you said this one is the best. Well, the one that's actually the best might exist so far into the infinitude that you'll never actually come into experience with it. But that's only a problem in relation to the Bible if God does not exist. If the Holy Spirit exists, then the Bible does not have any private interpretation. That's what the New Testament says. Which means that the Holy Spirit is the primary interpreter of Scripture. Not me. Because God is infinite, he can navigate in infinitude. So God has no problem with, I mean, there's so many interpretations. God does not have that problem because he's omniscient. Because the Holy Spirit has all knowledge, he can tell us what the correct interpretation is. If postmodernism is true, we should go back to the beginning of Christianity and say, look at the wide and varied range of interpretations that we have, and it's impossible to settle on any one of them. It's not true. From the beginning of Christian history until now, we have a pretty cohesive doctrine. We still have it today. Why is that? That's because of the Holy Spirit. So, ask Him for help. Number three, lastly, practically speaking, read what keeps you reading. Read what keeps you reading. We enter in the Bible and and we start in Genesis, and Genesis is riveting and interesting, and it's in a story format, which is what you should start with. You should start with stories. That's why if you're starting to read, you should start with the thing you're most likely to read, which for you might be novels or fiction, if, if you're that kind of person. Or if you're me, like biography stories about people that you're interested in. Find your favorite person, whoever existed, read their biography. It's a good way to start. Okay, the Bible is the same thing. Start with what you like. Like poetry, read Psalms and Proverbs. Like stories, read Genesis. Okay, you read Genesis, first half of Exodus. You get into the last half of Exodus. You're not that interested in tabernacle architecture. And so you quit, and you think there's something wrong with you. or something. Well, yeah, it is. You're dumb. But uh, you, think, you think that there's something wrong with the Bible. Nothing wrong with the Bible. You don't like detailed explanations of how to hang badger skin. So you're like most people. You're not that interested in what a wave offering is and how many times it's offered per day. And you're like, okay, here's what you do. Read what keeps you reading. People say leap through Leviticus. Leap over it. Leap over it if you don't like it. I'd rather you... Never read Leviticus in your life, then you never read the Bible in your life. So it's not a good trade. I like Leviticus. It's a total lie. I, I, li- I like Leviticus, but it's more of an acquired taste. I don't always like it. I just, uh, I'm starting Leviticus tomorrow. I'm probably going to speed read through it, to be honest with you. I'm more of in a New Testament mood right now. And so we're going to hang out with Paul a little bit. I'm excited to get back to that. But read what keeps you reading. What's the best Bible reading plan? There isn't one. Whatever plan keeps you reading the Bible is the best plan for you. That's it. So read what you like. 
There will always be a part of the Bible that you struggle to enjoy as much as other parts, but as Christians, we are to continually expose ourselves to the Word of God that we might be instructed by the Spirit of God in faith. I'll finish with this quote from John Newton. He said, The Bible is a sealed book till the heart be awakened, and then he that runs may read. So that's how you get more out of your Bible reading. Hey guys, if you enjoyed that, make sure you rate, share, and follow the podcast. When you follow, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. And make sure you connect with us on social media at Zach Evans Podcast. God bless.